The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. There's a remarkable romance recorded in the biblical book of Song of Solomon, and as it nears its climax in chapter 6, there is a dance that brings bride and groom together. And in chapter 7, verse 10 of Song of Solomon, the bride says this, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. That in many ways encapsulates what we've looked at the last two weeks from Ephesians 5. I belong to the promised covenant of love, and his desire is for me. He He's desiring to serve me. He desires what is best for me. This is what we've seen the last two weeks from Ephesians 5. Thus, in Song of Solomon, we see a reversal of the selfish use of desire hinted at in Genesis 3. And instead, we see a picture of the unselfish use of desire. That's why two verses later in Song of Solomon 7, verse 12, the bride says, let us go out and there I will give you my love. Secured in promise, they each unselfishly give themselves in true love for the other. And many students, when they're in their first or second year in seminary, they have a class called hermeneutics, a, a long title, but it simply means how to interpret things. And in that class, an example they always come across is Song of Solomon. Why do so many of our church fathers think that the book of Song of Solomon is about God's love for his bride, Christ's love for his church? How does that make sense in the original audience? And those questions are good to ask. But I think sometimes those seminary students are missing a rather obvious point. Have you ever observed the glow of newlyweds? Or the greater grandeur of those great-grandparents who still love each other with subtle patience and tenderness as husband and wife? Or perhaps if you've been married, you've had that moment where it's actually hit you at the depth of your soul. This person knows me, and yet they still love me. When that happens, you realize that it is an echo of something greater. C.S. Lewis, I think, illustrated this well when he told us to imagine a tool shed in your backyard on a sunny day. And when you walk in the middle of it, in between the wooden slats, rays of sunlight stream through. But those beams, of course, go up to a greater source. So why do our church ancestors think Song of Solomon could be about Christ and his love for his bride? For a very simple reason. Because any time we notice a beam of unselfish love, we know it has a greater source than anything here. That is why Ephesians 5 verse 32 says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and his church. Here we see again today, love that is beyond the circles of this world, love that is the breathtaking love of Christ. Now, if you've been with me, if you've been with us through Ephesians, you shouldn't be that surprised about that. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that all of this book records God's amazing grace to us in Christ. And there I gave the illustration that it's like touring the Biltmore Mansion room by room and seeing all of these incredible splendors of how God loves. But let me remind us today, brothers and sisters, we're still in the same mansion. 
So here as we talk about marriage, picture it as the ballroom where the dance is carried out between the partners in roles that are not reversible or exchangeable, but together reflect and grow in the love of Christ that he alone has and gives. So today's passage, we're going to focus on verse 33. So if you look in Ephesians 5, verse 33, let me read it and then explain how today's sermon will work. Ephesians 5, verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, most of you know, through Ephesians, we've taken about a paragraph at a time. Today, I'm going to really focus on just one verse. But from that one verse, I'm going to look back to the rest of the paragraph that we've looked at these previous weeks. And what today's verse says, in a way that's unescapable, is that husbands and wives are different, not reversible, but complementary dance partners. They fulfill roles that help one another, help complete one another. Now let's admit up front, for reasons largely autobiographical, our lived experience, our upbringing, maybe entertainment we've watched, relationships we've viewed closely, all of us have very, very strong feelings about how a husband and a wife ought to behave. Maybe we even confuse those with divine truth and say this is what God says a husband and a wife must do. On the other hand, some people argue there are no differences at all, that it's completely exchangeable. And yet what we'll see in this passage is is that the difference that God has is by design, and it will unavoidably emerge even if you try to deny it. But if you embrace it, it will enhance and serve the other partner. Now, a couple of reminders up front. What complicates our dance as husband and wife is that each of us have unique dance partners, Saw in verse 22, it said, let the wife love her own husband. Verse 25, let the husband love his own wife. As we said in the first sermon, that's the Greek word idios, from which we get idiosyncrasy. So we can never say your couple should be exactly the same as this one. They're each unique. What complicates that even further, though, is that we, even within our own marriage, change over time. Stanley Hauerwas was wise when he wrote this. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Even if we first marry the right person, give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger whom you find yourself married to. It's a good way to remember that if you've been married for multiple decades, you know you have changed, age has changed you, career shifts have changed you, raising children have changed you. This past week, we were at the beach for about five days, which was great. And I was observing how the beach is responded to differently based on your age. There's an age of life at the beach. They play and they sit right on the sand. There's another age where you're bringing a beach chair. You're sitting on that thing. And there's another age. You're mad you were invited to the beach. You're you're on the couch for a reason. That's where you're going to be. Age changes us. So what I want us to see this morning is that God has graciously and wisely given us timeless principles that are so perfectly given that they can adjust to every change of life and every uniqueness of dance partner. You can't reverse them. You can't exchange them. They're not stereotypes. But when they are embraced, they will breathtakingly enhance 
your spouse. So today's title, The Dance of Marriage. Uh, I hope you have your Bible open. If you need the Pew Bible, page 1162, we'll put you on the page that we're in. We'll mainly look at verse 33, but we'll look back at a couple of verses preceding, so you'll want the text open. If you're a note taker, here's the sermon in one sentence. <laughs> a husband and wife are empowered in Christ to unselfishly give themselves to one another in distinct, beautiful compliment. All right. A husband and wife are empowered in Christ to unselfishly give themselves to one another in distinct, beautiful compliment. And I, my outline is a little more opaque today, but first we're going to look at just the word however in verse 33. Okay. Verse 33 begins with the word however. One Greek scholar writes this, the opening conjunction translated however adversatively as in but or in contrast to can actually be translated as a conclusion to summate the discussion that preceded it. And that is how it is used here. So maybe a good translation would be, now in conclusion. So verse 33 builds and climaxes everything that precedes it. It climaxes on the promise that we saw last Sunday. So verse 31, therefore a man shall leave and cleave and hold fast to. This is the promise that marriage builds on and secures So that's an extremely quick point number one, but that really was last Sunday's sermon. So now already point number two. Because this builds on promise, point number two, the dance of marriage also can only mutually move to the song of unselfish love. Here's how I want you to see that in verse 33. After the word however, we have the word let. It's an adverb of willful humility of submitting myself to what God has designed, of giving myself to his wisdom. And then we read each one of you. And you could think that maybe he means just husbands there, but as the verse goes on to refer to both, he he must mean both. So let each one of us, in a posture of humility, embrace the unselfish love that Christ has modeled in distinct roles. Remember 1 Corinthians 13:4, love does not insist on its own way. 2 Corinthians 5:15, Christ died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, which is so natural for us to do. So verse 33 is telling us that we need Christ to work unselfish love in us and he will if we humbly let him. John Luther, or sorry, John Calvin, commenting on this 500 years ago, wrote this. When a marriage takes place between a man and a woman, God presides and requires a mutual pledge from both. This is what we have here in verse 33. Let each mutually pledge in humility. D.A. Carson writes well, the responsibilities then of both husband and wife are dramatically opposed to selfish interest. So both humbly giving themselves to the distinctions. And now let me show you an example of how we humbly serve one another. And if you'll look up to verse 28, and I'm going to walk a little bit of a razor's edge here, so try to, I'll try to do my best to be clear. Verse 28 is finishing the word primarily directed as husbands. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. But now in verse 29, Paul pops out and gives a principle that's not only primarily directed to husbands, but that is true for all of us. And that is verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. If you were here last Sunday, you know that 
Genesis uses the word flesh to refer to the whole person. But here Paul, actually, just two verses earlier, is using it literally to refer to our body. He's making a really subtle but profound point. Our body is you, but it's also something distinct from you that you're aware of. You know when your body is well. You know when it is not well. You know how to care for your body. You're intimately and acutely aware of any discomfort or pains in it. You have intimacy in your knowledge of it. So now notice verse 29 continues. None of us hate our own body really, but we nourish it and cherish it. And now, amazingly, we read just as Christ does for the church. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus Christ has the kind of intimate and acute awareness of our well-being that we so naturally have over our own body. He has a concern for how we are doing, that we are doing well. That's why verse 30 says, because we are members of his body. So Jesus' forgiving grace goes further. It's also transforming grace to see us nourished with a cherished manner. All right, so here's the conclusion I want to draw. Though the text started by primarily addressing husbands, then in verse 29, it made a broader principle. This is how we all care for our own flesh, which means that though husbands may be accountable to take the primary lead, husbands and wives have a mutual accountability towards the nourishing and cherishing of one another. And that builds on what was said in verse 26, the cleaning of one another, the cleaning of our body, the nourishing of our body. So here are the three words. If you're a a note taker, I want you to really click on these three words, and I'm going to try to unpack what they mean. The first word is clean, a Greek word that means to purge from evil. The second word is nourish, a word that means to build up. But the third word, cherish, that we just read, is the manner with which we do it. The word means with tenderness and affection. So here's my conclusion. Husbands and wives, you've been empowered by Christ to help clean and nourish one another with a manner of cherishing. Think about it this way. Cleaning is the most private thing that you do. You're flossing, you're clipping, you're washing, and you do so intimately and privately, but what this text is saying is in marriage, that other person has now received access to what was previously private. Now that you're one flesh, that other person is there, seeing all that needs to be cleaned, knowing all that needs to be nourished, which is why it really matters that they approach it with cherishing. Here's what I mean. All of us have areas that God is graciously trying to transform in us to make us more like Christ. But in many of our relationships, we can sort of hide those and overcome them, but not in this one. We might be overly opinionated, inflexibly demanding, abrasive, and harsh. And in most relationships, we can temper that, but in marriage, it will be manifest. We might be undisciplined, unreliable, easily distracted, we will be exposed for that. We may be insensitive, perfectionistic. Can you mispronounce perfectionism? I don't know. If that's, uh, impatient, irritable, anxious, worrisome, angry, highly independent, 
stingy, imprudent, people pleaser, all things we can mainly get by with. But in marriage, those are magnified and intensified. Now, that might make you tempted to be angry at your spouse, but husbands and wives, I want to remind us, they are not the cause of those things. God has actually given them as a Christ-given cure for those things. They're there to help clean and nourish such things, to help progressively make us into the image of Christ. But the key word is how they do it, and that is the word I showed you from verse 30. They nourish and cherish. Cherish means with tenderness and gentleness. Have you ever noticed that when somebody else has a physical flaw, you're ready for them to get over it, but when you're in physical pain, you want it to be treated very tenderly? When my children get a splinter, I tell them, sit still and be quiet. It's no big deal. When I get a splinter, I just want to call the hospital <laughs> and, and get like sedated, right? What I've learned about myself uh, is that all the things that are painful for me, I want someone to treat them very, very gingerly. It's a long story, but there was a dental mistake that caused me to have a problem down here in my lower teeth. And every time we have to switch to a new dentist and the person comes out to floss, I try to remain masculine and yet ask them to be very tender <laughs> with how, how they floss this, this, this part of my teeth. And every time I tell myself I'm going to sit there like a man and take it, and every time they floss and it pops down on that nerve, my right leg pops up in the air. <laughs> it is so painful. Now, this text, husbands and wives, hear me, means that God has given you as a gift to help transform your spouse from one degree of glory to the next into the glory that Christ has secured for them. But do it as gently as Jesus has done so with you, who would not break a bruised reed and would not snuff out a smoldering wick. Now, here's what I want you to know. Jesus not only forgives but he loves us enough not to leave us where he found us, but to transform us. And a husband and wife love each other enough to be honest, to help us transform into the image of Christ. But we must do so with endless grace towards one another. And here is how your grasp of the gospel will control your grasp of marriage. And by the way, it goes both directions. How you understand the gospel is how you will understand marriage. And how you understand marriage will also influence the way you understand the gospel. Let me explain. If you believe in almost gospel, it's close to correct, but not quite correct. It will drastically impact the way you treat your spouse. Let's start with this one. There's an almost gospel, but it is a false gospel. I'll call it a permissive gospel. Here's essentially how it sounds. God loves forgiving sin, and I love committing sin. This is a great arrangement. All right, that's the permissive false gospel. But think seriously how you would apply that to your marriage. They love doing wrong. I love celebrating them as they do wrong. Would that really be healthy? All right, now let me give you the flip side of, of the same coin. This is another almost gospel, but it is a false gospel. Let's call it the legalistic false gospel. God loves making impossible commands. I love feeling miserable, <laughs> but projecting condescension on other people. Now think of how you would apply that to marriage. They have impossible expectations. I can never meet them. That makes me miserable. And then I project my anger on other people. But if you get the gospel right, 
It holds things in tension that nothing else does. The gospel tells me hard truth. I am a sinner. I need a savior. I'm corrupt in my heart, in my mind, in my speech, in my actions. In fact, apart from God's grace, nothing truly good comes out of me. But the gospel goes further and the gospel says this, but God is more rich in mercy and more gracious than my sin. And he has sent his son to absorb my sin debt. And he gives forgiveness and grace over and over and over. How would that impact your marriage? Now, here's the key thing that that will do for you. It will make you profoundly humble and also profoundly strong. Profoundly humble because there's nothing actually intrinsically of eternal good in me, but profoundly strong because everything I need from beginning to end is exhaustively availed to me in Jesus Christ. And listen, this promise matters for you, husbands and wives. And Jesus has promised me he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. If you have that kind of promise with one another, you are freed to be honest and to be open. Paul said in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. And again, I assert my argument that the gospel helps you understand marriage, and marriage helps you understand the gospel. Marriage can be a ballroom in which you learn the dance of the drama of repeated repentance and repeated grace, repeated forgiveness and repeated faith. See, in the world, what we actually learn is that if you mess up, people will remind you about it for the rest of your life. But in the Bible, what we read in Psalm 103 is God will remember our sins no more. If you treat what the world talks about as you got to remember their fall forever and you bring that into your marriage, you will destroy it. But if you bring what God brings in, I will choose not to remember you according to your sin. It is covered and forgiven. Your marriage will flourish. See, every marriage, just to give you a little bit of real talk, Every marriage has a cycle. About once a day, someone exerts selfish sinfulness. About once a month, on a greater scale, one of the two is significantly selfish and sinful. And in many marriages, about once over the marriage, there is a seismic level of sin. What are you going to do with it? I mean, you start with peace. And then someone does something incredibly selfish or sinful, and you have estrangement. So what are you going to do with them? Depends how you understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, then you have a means through which you can acknowledge fully your sin and extend grace and forgiveness, and the estrangement can be erased and reconciliation can be resumed. This is what God is intending for us that we would know Jesus is forgiving and transforming grace. Now this leads us to number three, the one we're going to spend a little more time on. The dance of marriage has defined and distinctive roles, but these are for the inseparable good of the other. So now look again in verse 33, and here we'll plant our flag on this final verse and what it teaches us about marriage. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself. And we'll start here with the husband. 
This is now the summary and climactic word to husbands and how they treat their wives. A husband is to love his wife as Christ, who uses his authority to empty himself of it and sacrificially serve. He did so on the cross. He did so giving his life literally for his sheep. And in the same way, and only by the power of Christ, a husband is equipped in the Lord to not be naturally self-centered, as we all are, but to instead be self-emptying and sacrificial. But men, as husbands, I want to caution us with a word that this text convicts me to remember. Don't forget, the church submits to Christ as his head. The world does not. Here's what that means for us husbands. Headship is not something that can be asserted or coerced. A sacrificial head can only be affirmed by a wife who sees it. In the same way, the church submits to Christ, recognizing that he is a good sacrificial head. So men, don't think that you can coerce or secure this by force. Instead, empty yourself as Christ and trust him to give what he delights in. So the husband's authority, like Jesus over his church, is not self-seeking but servant-oriented for the eternal good of his spouse. But a husband is not the ultimate head. Only, only Jesus is. The husband is also a member of the body who submits to Christ, meaning that he can never do anything or demand anything outside of Christ. So husbands, today let us remember that Jesus shows us that the greatest one is the one who is most self-effacing, most serving, most devoted to the eternal good of the other. Jesus, who emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, left the glory of heaven, could have demanded the rocks to cry out, could have called 10,000 angels, but instead gave himself to death on the cross and told us to follow that example. In John 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and then he said this penetrating question, do you understand what I have just done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet because I've given you an example. You should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now we turn to the wife in the second half of verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Depending on what English translation you have in front of you, you might know that the word after wife has a variance of translation. It's because it's a strong Greek word. The Greek word is phobios, from which we get our word fear. Actually, if you look up to verse, tw- verse 21 in the passage, the exact same word is used in our reverence for Christ. Here it's used for the wife in the way she views her husband. I think respect is a helpful term to summarize what's been given before. Another good synonym might be admire. A wife then is called, and this verb is in the middle voice, so to willingly choose to admire her husband, to use her tremendous gifts, to selflessly serve and support and help him build up and grow into what the Lord calls him for. 
The wife then, like Jesus, uses her gifts to empower another, affectionately sharpening him and aligning her will with God's in her support. Jesus Christ did the same. Though he is equally God, he still chose to submit himself to the Father, aligning his will with his. And the dance that we see in husband and wife, remember, is merely to echo the dance we see between the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. So think of it this way. When God the Son, Jesus, took on the dance role of subordinate support, remember Philippians 2 says that God the Father highly exalted him. We see then that the dance is actually about enhancing and loving the other. Think of times in his earthly ministry where Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. He wanted to exalt the name of God the Father. But think of times where God the Father publicly said, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased in him, like at his baptism or his transfiguration. So notice then the two are honoring one another within their roles as dance partners. In Jesus' self-serving and emptying, he is not showing weakness, but unparalleled greatness. So husbands and wives, when we live out the distinctions that we have, rather than trying to erase or avoid them, we actually enhance one another and do the very thing we were first created to do. Remember Genesis 1, when God said, let us make mankind in our image and after our likeness, he then said this, and he created them male and female after his image. Do you know what that means? It requires both to reflect the image of God. This illustration is not unique to me, but if you walk outside of your house and you look through the window, you can kind of see a reflection of yourself in glass. It's not totally clear, but it's somewhat clear. Similarly, if you're making lunch for your family and you pull out aluminum foil, you can kind of see your reflection in the aluminum foil. It's kind of clear. But if you take the aluminum foil and put it behind the glass, then you have a mirror. The two of them combine to reflect what neither of them can fully reflect on their own. Husband and wife together reflect the image of God with their opposites intact. Like two puzzle pieces that have just the right jagged edges as Adam realized when he saw Eve, you're me, but you're not the same as me. So it is with us, equal but not equivalent, completing through the enhancement of an opposite. That is how the divine choreographer made it. Now, we've been through Ephesians for weeks, but... I'm not that surprised that the last several weeks that we've looked at this passage on marriage, I've received more emails and questions than any of the other weeks in Ephesians. And I'm really thankful for that. I am. So thank you for questions you've asked and things you've, they've been really, really helpful. In these short sermons, I'm sure there's not everything that we can get to. If you want to read my rough drafts, there are many pages cut out that may have helped at some question that you had. But one question that I've been asked many times is, Josh, okay, this all sounds like great esoteric concepts about how husband and wife work together. But who does the cooking? You know, who does the clean? Like, how are the domestic duties decided? How do we figure all that out? And here's my sentence to you this morning. God's silence on the particular nuances of what husbands should do, distinct from what wives should do, is both intentional and definite. 
You hear what I'm saying? God, God purposely does not decide that for us. And it's deafening, the silence in the Bible, how little the Bible actually says about the concrete behavior. Instead, it just gives the firm principle, knowing that every marriage dance has to work that out, and it will change over the lifetime of your marriage. Instead of saying, who has to do what, the Bible instead says, give your posture as one to serve. Have the heart of Christ and don't ask, what do I do and what does she do? Instead, actually, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's my pastoral word to you as husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, I want to encourage you to ask the words of verse 33 to one another over the next week or month. Husbands, when you have a private moment where it's a good time to ask, ask your wife seriously, honey, based on Ephesians 5.33, how can I love you better? And wives, ask your husband, based on Ephesians 5, verse 33, do I come across as someone who respects and admires you? How can God grow me in that and talk honestly with one another about how the Lord is moving you in that dance? See, who works and who does what domestic responsibilities are not in the Bible for a reason. Did you know that all the stereotypes we have about gender exist because of the unbalanced and unredeemed versions of masculinity and femininity. So the Bible doesn't give gender stereotypes. It gives transcendent principles. And in those transcendent principles, understand that the dance will move with distinctions that cannot be erased, but that will be enhanced as you love and respect one another. I'll try to give one example. Stephanie and I enjoy very different radio stations. I'm more than a little bit of a nerd, and I like 89.7. It's the classical station. It's great. Uh, tomorrow we start school, and I'll drive the kids to school, and I'll be barely awake, and I'll turn on the classical station, and it'll calm me, and hopefully it'll sedate them in the backseat. That's, I love it. Now, Stephanie likes that station. I can't remember its exact dial. It's like 98.9 or something like that. It's the local, like, pop Christian station. I can always tell when she's driving down the cul-de-sac to her house because the moonroof is open, the kids are standing up, and they're doing this to the Christian station all the way home. And I just have a very different taste than she does. Now, if you'll think in terms of radio stations, so often when we're trying to love one another, we can forget that we have different frequencies. And rather than trying to erase such frequencies... We should realize how they enhance one another. Um, I've been a pastor for a while. By far, the most personal counseling I've done is, is marriage counseling. And one of the books that I've seen abused the most, and I don't think it's this guy's fault, but the most abused book I've seen is Gary Chapman's The Love Languages. Are you familiar with this book? So often, someone comes to me and says, well, Dr. Gary said that I get to be loved this way, so they better love me this way now which is the precise opposite of the posture of Ephesians 5. This was illustrated really well by, um, by R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul had a birthday coming up, and he was desperately hoping that his wife would buy him a new set of golf clubs. And so he left many clues for her to buy him golf clubs. And when his birthday came around, she bought him six white undershirts. <laughs> 
And so then her birthday came around, and he was so excited to try to really extravagantly love her, and so he bought her a brand new fur coat. And she was so mad because she wanted a new washer and dryer. (laughs) But what they should learn about one another is actually their distinct radio frequencies are the very reason God has put them together to enhance and complete each other. In marriage, as, as husband and wife, God has given you a lens through which to see what your blind spots have always kept you from seeing. He's given you that person who makes you whole so that the two of you together can reflect the image of God. This morning, I'm reminded that there is an ironic similarity between immature love and mature love. Both immature love and mature love are blind to the flaws of their significant other. But here's the difference. Immature love is headed for a serious wake-up call. Where mature love is blind to the flaws of the other because they've covered them and forgiven them. As Charles Spurgeon wisely said it, I have one blind eye and one deaf ear, and they are the best eye and the best ear that I have. See, here's what I want you to know this morning. Jesus Christ chose to love us while we were yet sinners. He chose to love us with the greatest awareness of our flaws and our shortcomings. But unlike an immature spark that fades away once the ugliness comes out, instead, Jesus' pure love burns brighter and brighter and brighter until he eternally removes the dross of our character to leave the glorified self that he has made. In our culture, when two people are dating, one person does not want to be caught dead with another person that makes them look bad. They want to date someone who enhances their glory. Praise God, Jesus is not like us. He loves us not because of how we enhance him. He loves us because he loves, because he is love. And our marriages, when they work that way, will be the beam that traces up to the sun that one day all Christians will experience. Revelation 19, verse 7, says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Then we'll see the splendor of our dross removed. But this morning, hear what Jesus says at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come and receive water without price and take the water of life. I know there are many reasons we might be scared to make a commitment. We might be scared to recommit our marriages, recommit our lives, to actually take the step of marriage or to come to Christ. And that's because intuitively we know that love has an authority to it. Fall is my favorite season. I really, really like Michigan football. I really like when the leaves turn color. I like cider. I like donuts. I like when I'm not sweating the entirety of the day. (laughs) But what I've learned the last 15 years is football and cider and walks, I don't like them anymore unless Stephanie's there. Because now the authority of love has put me underneath them. If you're on the outside of that, you could say, man, that sounds terrible. 
I don't want to live like that. Right now, I'm so free that if I want to go to California tomorrow, I don't have to ask anybody. I just go. But what I'm trying to help you understand is I don't want to be there anymore unless she's there. If you come to Christ today, if you bring whatever you're concerned about to Christ, even your marital challenges, what you will find is though it's scary to put yourself under that authority, there's no place you'd rather be. There's a sense in which you're reborn and you're remade and you're reshaped from the heart out so that you love the authority of his love. So this morning, come to the one who gives you water without price with whatever it is that only he can change. Let's go to him this morning. God, thank you for giving us just a few Sundays to look in Ephesians 5 and behold the wisdom of your word. Again, Lord, I I am such an imperfect mouthpiece, so please only let your perfect truth be implanted in your people. But may we not be resistant to whatever is true. And may we find in our relationships a willingness to be cleaned, to be nourished, And may we cherish one another as Christ uses us to do that. I know there are people here from totally different stations of life and walks of life, and you know them and love them and know what's on their heart this morning. All of us have a common need and thankfully a common invitation. Jesus says to us, come. And come and receive the water of life without price. You don't have to pay for it because he paid for it. So thank you for the good news of the gospel, that we can come to you and commit our lives to you. We can commit to taking the next step in what you've called us to do, even though it's very scary, but knowing that under the authority of your good and perfect love, we'll find that's where we actually want to be. And so moving us towards that and echo the radiance of your glory through the reflection of it in your people. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.